episode 299. FFS, fee-for-service, is a whole business model. It's not just a way to get paid. Today, I speak with Dr. Alan Kaplan. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. If you are a forward-thinking specialist right now, alarm bells may be going off given COVID and or the prospect of another COVID-style pandemic. Also, all of the capitated and advanced PCP practices popping up. Also, virtual care models. FFS is a cushy status quo revenue model until it isn't. One underappreciated point might be that FFS is not only a, you know, revenue slash payment model, it's also a business model. And as a business model, FFS very much drives how practices structure themselves to realize that FFS revenue. Consider that to earn a fee for a service, someone, a human person, has to physically do the service. So all FFS-style businesses have an inherent incentive to add labor and not use technology in any way that actually reduces the amount of billable human hours involved in providing care to patients. But if that top-line revenue line goes down, wow, you'll find yourself, as many did, with way too many employees. An FFS business model has zero flexibility when it comes to revenue that isn't consistently going up or, at a minimum, a flat line. If revenue plummets and payroll is big, big so as to power a way higher revenue number than is possible for whatever reason, you have a major financial problem on the quick. That is what I talk about today with Alan Kaplan, MD, MBA. Dr. Kaplan is assistant professor of urology at Georgetown University, and he is a practicing urologist. He recently co-wrote a paper with Dan O'Neill in the pub NEJM Catalyst Innovations in Care Delivery. The article discusses COVID-19 and healthcare's productivity shock, as they call it. Dan O'Neill, by the way, was on the show. Also, he was on episodes 287 and part of 292. But in the article that Dr. Kaplan and Dan O'Neill wrote, they give some advice to specialists and hospitals who are looking to evolve with the changing marketplace. Spoiler alert, conceptually, it's a shock to move from a place where every year you can count on your billings going up and up and move to a model instead that assumes that this is not the case. So yeah, there's a little talk for sure about the joys and challenges of transitioning to value or value-based payment model, but that's only the very first consideration. It's also about reconsidering the operating model and the strategic use of digital technologies. We talk about all of the above today. Quick sidebar, my interview with Dr. Steve Schutzer, episode 294, might be a good follow-on for a very actionable work plan for specialists to implement some of the advice that Dr. Kaplan gives today. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Alan Kaplan, MD, MBA. Welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thanks so much for having me. Before we kick into our conversation today about specialists, is there any distinctions 
that you would want to make relative to who we're talking about today when we use the very, very general term specialists? It's definitely a broad brushstroke. In the context here, when I use the term specialist, to a certain extent, I am thinking of predominantly ambulatory organized practice specialists, ortho and GI, perhaps cardiology, although that involves a lot of inpatient care, urology, I'm biased. And I am shying away from, let's say, intensivists, right, or hospitalists, because those are specialties, but uh, obviously the economics in their field are different. You know, another way that you could slice this up is by geography. It's well established at this juncture that certain areas of the country are slightly ahead of others in coming to some sort of value-based care equilibrium. Does that also factor into what you're saying here? Sure. And, you know, we know that at-risk primary care groups, those are the ones that are going to curate and send patients to specialists. That market went from something like 50 million Americans in 2010 to almost 120 million Americans in 2020. So that's a 10% year-over-year growth. It represents about a trillion dollars of annual spending. So that's kind of broadly at large. But then if you look at individual markets, you have some markets where value-based care whether it's through true capitation, HMOs, accountable care organizations, MSSP, et cetera. In some markets, it's really pretty minor, but then in other markets, you have 50, 60% of primary care patients being cared for by a primary care group that is financially accountable for that care. That William Gibson quote, the future is here, it's just unevenly distributed. Sounds like that's what we've got going on here. But how does that, so say I'm a PCP and I am a ChenMed or, you know, an Adelaide or any of the other ones that are are taking on Oak Street that, that are taking on risk. I'm a PCP. How does that impact the specialists around me and maybe their march to value? What you just laid out in that question really gets at the crux of what becomes both an opportunity, but also an extreme threat to specialists. Because again, they're sitting at the bottom of the funnel. The Allidades of the world and Oak Street and and Iora and and ChenMed, Privia, all of these kind of at-risk primary care groups, they're the ones controlling the faucet, right? And so to a certain extent, they're going to want to limit costly referrals, unless they're absolutely necessary and or going to contribute to better quality of care. And so right now, the specialists don't really have, most specialists don't really have too much access to value-based care models, and they haven't needed to because, frankly, those referrals keep coming in and they're doing well. What's interesting is that on the one hand, you've got those at-risk primary cares that may be trying to wrench the faucet a little bit on one side, but then on the other side, you have this whole other potential threat, which is kind of the specialist virtual care model, which a lot of those companies have done extremely well lately. So that's going to be Livongo is a great example, Hinge Health, Hims and Hers, or Roman is a big one in, in urology. So effectively, we've got two sides of, you know, like two bookends kind of squeezing in on on specialists, from what I'm understanding. On one side, you've got PCPs who may be at loath to refer to especially certain specialists who they're not sure, you know, appropriate care, question mark. 
lots of tests that get run, question mark, you know, and if the PCP is on the hook to ensure that downstream costs are controlled, I could see how if I was a PCP, I'd be a little hesitant to send my patient into an unknown financial situation from certain specialists who may not have a value-based care kind of bent. But it sounds like, you know, the other bookend is, you know, healthcare used to be local because geography, but now given the internet and telehealth and COVID and all kinds of other things, virtual care is really becoming a thing. And, you know, as you just mentioned, a number of these sort of national companies that also, it sounds like, become a competitive threat for certain specialists. Even if you think that COVID is a one-time, never-going-to-happen-again thing, what is different now is that threat on the other side, right? There's always been this possibility, if you go back to the capitation HMO days of the 1990s, there was always that threat to specialists, but there was never anything on the other side. There was nobody else to address those specific conditions. And I think that's really what's changed. Now might be a good time to bring up the article that you wrote with Dan O'Neill and EJM, the Catalyst for Innovations in Care Delivery, about COVID-19 and healthcare's what you termed productivity shock. In that article, you gave some advice to specialists who are looking to evolve with this, this changing marketplace, and we'll get there in a moment. But there was also a few insights in there that I thought were really compelling, frankly just sort of about how the marketplace has constructed itself over the years. What I think has been revealed in healthcare is in most other industries, technology leads to, and advances in technology lead to a reduction in labor burden, right? Technology, quote, puts people out of work. But in healthcare, that really hasn't been the case. You've seen the clinical workforce get significantly bigger. You've seen the administrative offices of practices and hospitals get significantly bigger. Yet from a technology standpoint, especially an information technology standpoint, compared to where we were 20 years ago, I mean, it's leaps and bounds. But if you look at a lot of the practices and hospitals, there's just a lot of fat there. <laughs> There's just a lot of excess infrastructure and the operating structure is just, it's very heavy. And I think that that really got revealed in COVID and it, when dollars stopped flowing in the door, people feel that and practices really felt that. Effectively, we've got a situation in healthcare where not only does technology, as you said, you know, generally speaking, you add tech, you reduce your workforce. That's not happening in healthcare. Technology also everywhere else tends to reduce prices and costs. And that also doesn't seem to be the case in healthcare. You add tech, you actually increase the cost to patients. Obviously, that implies a certain belief structure amongst those making the decision to pay money for tech and then continue to pay money for labor. That's what's different about healthcare, right? Prices don't go down or have not gone down historically. And um, my co-author on the paper who you've, you've had before on your, on your podcast recently, I think Dan O'Neill, has been beating that drum for years that the prices just keep going up and have, have continued to go up. And when you're a practice or a hospital, growth is the way that you get more. And technology is never really in healthcare 
at least until recently, has never really been about making the bottom line more efficient. It's been about expanding the top line. I think that caught up with a lot of especially independent practices and specialist practices with COVID when, frankly, practices that didn't have any recurring revenue that wasn't strictly tied to volume of care and patients coming in. When the patients didn't come in anymore, all of a sudden, all of that heavy infrastructure that they had bought, all of that technology, all of that labor force, you can't pay for. And I think that 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 is really, in my mind, from a business model standpoint, that is potentially going to be the wake-up call for a lot of specialist practices. Any fluctuation in revenue, you can't alter the costs accordingly. So all of a sudden, you get yourself in a situation, in a pickle real quick. That's right. We have a situation right now where if I'm a specialist, I have large fixed costs in the form of technology, in the form of personnel, and I have revenue that is very dependent on patient volume. And if I have 100% of my revenue that's very dependent on patient volume, and then that patient volume goes away, it definitely, there's obviously inherent risk in that setup. Let's talk about your advice. And I probably should have said spoiler alert because there was some heavy duty foreshadowing. But, you know, obviously it's a transition toward a more value-based model. Do you want to elaborate? Again, like, like we talked about at the outset, This is something that has really been a rallying cry for years. I think I wrote an article in Urology Times about this maybe six years ago, you know, fee-for-service is going away, etc. And in retrospect, it seems silly and I seem very wrong. But I think the more nuanced look is that it's just taking longer than any of us thought it would. But certainly for practices that have, as an example, there are a couple of practices that I've, uh, that I've been in touch with in, in Southern California that have, let's say, 30 or 40% of their revenue in some kind of capitation model. So they have revenue coming in the door on a monthly basis, whether the patients come in or not. And then the rest of their revenue is on a fee-for-service basis. So to a certain extent, they did significantly better and fared much, much better than, uh, than practices that were all in in fee-for-service. So I, I do think that that's an important piece for specialist groups that want to still be relevant in five years. They need to at least be considering and thinking about that because the alternative is usually getting bought out by a hospital system or private equity group. As Brian Klepper said when he was on the podcast, I think it was episode 292, he said, you know, change happens really slowly until it doesn't, you know, just one day, all of a sudden, it's kind of bumping along, and then it accelerates really fast. So, you know, it takes a while to put all these contracts in place. And, you know, I just had Steve, Dr. Steve Strachan talking about how to put together a center of excellence and move toward a bundled payment model. It's not something you can do on Tuesday. If I'm a specialist, you know, a urologist, how am I getting a PMPM? Like, is somebody paying me a percentage, you know, like somebody did some math and assumed that so many patients in a population are going to require the care of a urologist and therefore I'm getting some kind of monthly retainer to care for them? Or how does that work? Ultimately, that data exists. Unfortunately, the data that specialists have access to is just the numerator, right? The patients that got sent to them. 
and they don't have any access to denominator, the number of patients that could have gotten sent to them. I think that's really the big data lopsided problem. But ultimately, the data lives with the at-risk primary care groups and or payers. And definitely there is interest on the payer side in this, but it's hard, right? And, and to your point, it doesn't happen on a Tuesday. And it takes a long time for both the delivery side, but also on the payment side to figure out how that works. So definitely specialists that are in markets where you have high concentration of capitation, those specialists are at an advantage compared to places where, where those just don't exist. And anybody that lags too long is, is probably going to have at some juncture no other option than to sell out, it sounds like. After residency, I did a healthcare administration fellowship at UCLA and was really involved in their formation of their joint replacement bundle program. When all said and done, the analogy that kept coming up from the C-suite there was it's really hard when fee-for-service is what keeps the lights on. It's really hard to make that first step towards something that is going to inevitably but temporarily turn the lights off. And the bigger the organization, the harder it is to, quote, turn the lights off, even for, you know, for a couple hours. What's the advice then? I mean, is your advice then to just kind of like delay this as long as possible when you have to flip a switch and, you know, like one day you're going to be FFS and the next day you're going to be VBC and then you can skip the whole messy middle? I don't think that that'll work because I think what's going to happen is, to your point earlier, there are a lot of ducks that need to be in a row for you to make that transition. And I think that the innovative entrepreneurial specialists, particularly in independent groups, some that I've talked to have really been trying to put the pieces in place, even though they're not exactly sure how they're all how they'll all fit together. They're trying to put the pieces in place so that when they have those pieces and they think that they can go to a payer and negotiate with them, or on the flip side, a payer or an at-risk primary care group comes to them, they're prepared and they have the infrastructure to do it. And some of that infrastructure is not necessarily off the shelf. So so I do think that it needs to be incremental. I I think it needs to be preparatory. Frankly, uh, and this is my own bias, but I think that the smaller, more nimble, independent specialist groups are going to be at a significant advantage compared to the large, bulky groups, perhaps multi-state, private equity owned, and or especially hospital employed groups. The second piece of advice that you offer up is that hospitals and practices should really revisit their operating models that presume ever-rising revenue. What does that look like? I think if there's one thing that COVID has taught all of us, the way we always did things is not the way that we have to always do things in the future. My first grader doing Zoom school downstairs (laughs) can attest we can adapt. And, you know, a lot of digital health and health tech luminaries have been saying that telehealth is going to take over, et cetera, et cetera. But it wasn't until a global pandemic that it really became widely adopted. And so just to briefly walk through what a visit looked like in my office, seeing a urology patient in January or February, you know, Patient got checked in by a human in person, and then they got taken back by a medical assistant into their room who checked their vital signs, et cetera. 
Don't know why we checked vital signs in a urologist's office that just kind of seemed right. You know, there were probably four or five staff members touching the patient, literally and, and, and figuratively, before I, as the urologist, ever even went and, and, and talked to the patient. And then there were like another two or three touch points after that. All of a sudden, that wasn't how we had to do it anymore. And you have a virtual check-in, patients adapted to kind of the virtual world really quickly. And so I think that hospitals and practices are going to have to start rethinking the headcount that touches the patient and that needs to and kind of virtual efficiency as we kind of navigate this new world. Well, also, are you suggesting, I mean, the the estimates that I've heard is that moving forward, probably 10 to 15 percent of overall visits will wind up being virtual. So, okay, you know, we can cut headcount down by 10 to 15 percent or whatever, you know, because that's going away. But I'm also sort of hearing the implication that, all right, maybe you can skip the vitals. So the lessons learned in virtual care can be applied to in-person care. For sure. And I would take it a little further. If a lot of my urology colleagues were uh, were in person right now, they might be throwing tomatoes at me. But we learned, and this is is definitely not specific in specific to urology, but we learned that a lot of things that we used to jump on and manage with procedures and surgeries aggressively pre-COVID, we managed more conservatively during COVID because we were forced to, and. In some cases, and I don't want to belittle this, in some cases, there were significant untoward outcomes due to a delay in care. And and that, that has to be said. But at the same time, I think we learned that managing certain certain conditions conservatively does not necessarily cause any worse outcomes. That's going to be relevant for things like back surgery for back pain active surveillance for prostate for low risk prostate cancer in my field. And I do think that a lot of those patterns are going to stick. So people are working on standards of care and evidence-based medicine pathways that reflect the learnings from what might be one of the largest, (laughs) I don't know if it's a RCT because there was no control group, but there's a pretty big set of the cohort here in the experimental arm. Right. And and even taking it a step further, it's not just new learnings, right? It was that a lot of the guidelines tiptoed or tiptoe around specific recommendations and, you know, they leave things up to physician and and patient judgment. And that's good. But I think that a lot of us practicing became more comfortable with virtually managing a patient and the sort of wait and see approach and and the virtual check-ins. So the third piece of advice that you have put forth here is to finally fully implement digital solutions for referrals and documentation. Well, so so first of all, again, walking back to February 2020, a referral came in via fax machine. Remember those things? Or, Or a home health order was faxed over. And all of the sudden, we didn't use fax anymore, right? And so I think that a lot of the digital solutions that we've been talking about where we just haven't really implemented fully are going to be moved along. The other is one area that's really interesting to me that kind of marries the transition to value-based care with the advances in and comfort with, on the part of of physicians, virtual care is asynchronous consultation, right? So some places these are called e-consults, but effectively that is a way that at-risk primary care doctors can send consultations or send patient questions to a specialist 
to be evaluated virtually, not with a visit, but really just reviewing the chart, reviewing the imaging, reviewing some labs, and make a judgment call about whether or not that patient needs to come in or whether or not that patient can be continued to be managed with medications instead of surgery, et cetera. That has really been sort of vanguard in certain places, and, and there are definitely companies that are doing this, but it's kind of where, where video visits were five years ago. It's interesting. People think it's going to be a wave of the future, but it's not heavily adopted. I think that's an area that, that we'll probably see much more interest on part of both the specialist and the primary care doctors. And do you feel like that there's an opportunity for local specialists? And obviously, there are companies that are doing this. I can think of two or three off the top of my head, as a matter of yep. fact. And they're multi-specialty. They're national organizations, and you sign up as a PCP. And then if you've got a urology question or a, you know, orthopedic question or a oncology question or whatever, like you send an email to the same address, right? But the local market has had referral flows for years, you know? So maybe that local PCP is used to referring to the urologist down the street. Are you suggesting that it might be worthwhile for these specialists to kind of get their own model together for how they're going to do asynchronous consults for the local PCPs, you know, basically create a product and offer it. A hundred percent. Yeah. So, so the biggest one that a lot of people have heard of would be Rubicon MD and there are a few others, but when all said and done, number one, a certain subset of patients, and it's not trivial, will need to be touched physically by a specialist and the national companies just can't achieve that without partnerships. Something that you kind of alluded to earlier, healthcare still is local. Now, I think it's maybe becoming a little bit more nationalized, but when all said and done, the relationship between primary care docs and the specialists that they refer and that they entrust with to take care of their patients, those relationships are really, really important. This is a little bit of my high and mighty sidebar, but I think that health tech in general has failed to design for that. It's kind of disregarded the human element between doctor and patient, primary care doctor and specialist, and that's probably an unfair broad stroke, broad brushstroke, but I think as it pertains to that kind of asynchronous consultation, I do think there's a real opportunity for local specialists who already have those referral relationships who the primary care doctors know they can trust and know will be responsive. For sure, if they can tool up and maximize that referral management, they're going to be at a significant advantage over those bigger players. Yeah, I was talking to Dr. Arshad Rahim several months ago, and he said something that has stuck with me. He said, you know, technology is top down, but the relationship between a physician and his or her patient is bottom up. Yeah, well put. Yeah, I thought so. Okay, so lastly, and this wasn't in the article, but one of the things that you have advocated for early and often is for physician groups to remain independent. Sure. Just briefly about my background for context, in a very relatively short career thus far, I've been with a multi-specialty group, a very large single-specialty group, that was private equity owned, an employee of a hospital. And, and my, my most recent experience tells me that there's been this trend of consolidation in healthcare that we have been watching for decades, frankly. 
Hospital systems are buying up everybody around them. Private equity groups are rolling up groups across state lines. And even locally in markets, what were once comfortable four to five physician groups have combined into, let's say, 15 or 20 person groups. That trend seems to be going strong. My crystal ball, to a certain extent, is that we're going to see a reversal of that at some point in the next five, 10 years. Not all the way, but I I do think it's going to, at the very least, decelerate. A couple of reasons and, and rationale. Number one, I think that particularly for specialists, It's just an autonomous, independent group of folks that want to do things, that believe the way that they do things are best. And while they might not want to manage the business side, the corporate practice of medicine, there is a chance that it can infiltrate into clinical decisions the bigger the organization gets, right? whether directly or indirectly. The other point that I find fascinating is there's this group of physicians that I'm going to call millennial physicians, but at this point, they're even younger than that, that are really mission-driven. And the idea of corporatized healthcare just doesn't already and isn't going to sit well with them as they move into managerial roles within practices. And I think that that's going to be a big driver culturally to kind of deconglomerate and become independent. To me, that's kind of the the optimal patient care. It's interesting that you say that because that's actually the opposite of what many have said about you millennials. (laughs) You guys don't want to be your own boss and that there's record numbers of employed physicians because there's, you know, the work-life balance thing. So what you're saying, I mean, maybe it's a pendulum that's swinging around, but how do you see that fitting into what you just said? So the response that you just gave is the response I get every single time I make that comment. But I think that it's a little bit more nuanced. So certainly younger physicians care more about work-life balance. They care more about family time, et cetera. But at the same time, again, cue the tomato throwing, but I think they view healthcare more as, or clinical care more as calling, if you will. And there's more mission alignment. The bigger organizations get, the more corporate they get in healthcare services, the more at risk they are of becoming disconnected with the original mission and the mission of the young physicians. I think that while you're right, you know, there's probably not a whole lot of interest in, you know, being your own boss, managing practice, et cetera. Broadly, there's a really, really big segment of millennial physicians on down that are entrepreneurial. And to date, the only entrepreneurial activities that they've been able to accomplish, for the most part, have been in Silicon Valley, broadly, right? But I think that those opportunities are going to exist. And I think there's a lot of people out there that would be interested in filling. Where can people go to learn more about your work? If they are interested, where would you direct them? Always happy to have conversations about kind of value-based care. I'm really excited to learn more and understand, particularly on the specialist side, to understand where people are on that journey. Is it something that they're thinking about, something that they've made steps toward? So reaching out via LinkedIn is always great. Would love to have conversations with anybody who's, uh, who's willing to talk. Alan Kaplan, MD, MBA. Thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thanks a lot, Stacey. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com.
If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.